Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Much America strays away from the ideals of justice. The goal of America is freedom. Used and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up in the destiny of America. Before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before Jefferson etched across the pages of history the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. Before the beautiful words of the Star-Spangled Banner were written, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored here without wages. They made cotton kings. They built the homes of their masters in the midst of the most humiliating and oppressive conditions. Yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continue to grow and develop. I say that if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery couldn't stop us, the opposition that we now face, including the so-called white backlash, will surely fail. We're going to win our freedom. Because both the sacred of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demand. <laughs> America's chickens are coming home to Rooster. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. 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 Transforming truth truth to power, one broadcast broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And welcome. 
welcome to our common ground, the Black Truth Sanctuary, and uh, we hope that you are well. We've had a tough week in the struggle toward liberation and freedom and democracy in America, a really tough week, but as I always say, we always have a tough week, all the weeks are tough. If you are in the struggle, thank you for being with us. And this is our second episode of the 2022 season. And if you are new to us, we welcome you. And for our loyal fans and listeners, we thank you. Take your seats, and we'll give you a little time to settle in This is the place where we transform truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And I am Janice Graham, thankful for moving into my 36th year as a broadcaster, as a race woman on the radio, talking black truth, black history, encouraging a black spirit of liberation. If you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can do so by coming to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. And we want a special shout out to all of our listeners who are in various places, Spotify, iTunes, Intune, in, we are everywhere on every podcast live network and platform that we can find because we believe that transforming truth to power one broadcast at a time as we together struggle for our humanity and claim our demands for our freedom here at Our Common Ground. Uh, I was really, really surprised when I got email uh, where uh, people were telling me that they were on a platform in, uh, in, in, in two cities in uh, South Africa. Evidently, I've been added to um, a podcast application uh, that serves South Africa. So good for us that we can reach out to our ancestral connections uh, with this broadcast, and I'm very proud of that. We hope that you are staying safe, uh, and we continue to reiterate, as we do at the beginning of this broadcast every Saturday night, that the pandemic is not over. We are now in a phase of surge with a variant of the COVID-19 called Omicron. And Omicron, um, over the past, as of last Sunday, has hospitalized, the infection of that variant has hospitalized 142,000 388 people in the United States. This is data 
that I am reporting from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and it surpasses the single-day peak of 142,313 reported on January 14th of last year. Um, An interesting element has been noted about this particular variant that it is being driven in terms of transmissibility transmissibility uh, by people who are younger than age 60 and that people like me who are elders and they are 60 years older or more, that the hospitalization rates are lower than they were on last winter at this time. And I don't know, that's like a double-edged sword. But um, I do let people know that recently I traveled from a two-month holiday vacation uh, and um, I isolated myself for, um, I guess, It will now be 10 days, uh, 12 days, and I have two more days to go because I was sitting on an airplane with a whole bunch of people. They all had on masks, but some of those masks were uh, little cloth pretty masks with some kinds of symbols and pictures and the whole nine yards. And so I, arriving, decided to isolate myself. Um, So um, many of our listeners know that I talk about my grand joys a lot. And my youngest one, who is 10, who turned 10 in December, he has had both vaccinations at this point. And on both times that he got the vaccination, both days that he got the vaccination, he played his basketball game, went to his basketball practice, and he was he's doing fine. Um, my daughter, who had COVID, was infected with COVID very early on, which was January uh, ne- uh, 2019. Um, she is now vaccinated and and has had her booster. And, you know, there was one point during this pandemic that people were saying, well, if you get COVID, once you have it, you have antibodies that protect you from being infected. We don't hear much of that talk. And I do agree that the Department of Human um, and um, Human Services has HHS and Human and Health Services has been very good about updating people on the public health issues about this pandemic. The CDC uh, has been, people are getting the impression that their messaging needs to be clearer. But one of the things that we, we have to note, not in defense of them, because they could do a better job, everybody could do a better job of whatever they're doing. But one of the things is that is that the medical information reports 
from research and findings are coming at them so fast that I can imagine that sometimes um, they're they're finding it difficult to process and to synthesize the information and that and, and the result is that you get a mixed bag of and confusing of guidance uh, from them. And my criticism of them is that they have to take responsibility for that and understand that the public really needs clearer, more concise information on various subjects that affect them. For instance, their messaging should be categorized. How, what mask, how, how to mask, um, should be one set of, of information that they give out. Um, when to get a vaccine, what kind of vaccine to get, blah, blah, blah. Vaccine should be another get. So they could manage it better. But these numbers are not looking good. 132,086 is the seven-day average on on this COVID-19 virus. And 85% of those are from this new variant. And I read, but I didn't read the entire thing, um, I looked through a report that I was seeing that there is another variant that is breaking through the Omicron variant. So what I'm suggesting to you is to be safe. Use your common sense um, to make your pitch at your employer and where you work in the places where you eat, um, about encouraging them to be, and your neighbors, to be considerate, uh, your family members to be considerate of others as we try to get through this pandemic that doesn't seem that it's ever going to end. Uh, do want to um, make a, a brief comment uh, about an event that is happening as we are on the air of hostages that were taken at a service at Colleyville, Texas, um, Congregation Beth Israel, which is a synagogue by a gunman who is making demands and the FBI, FBI crisis negotiators, the Texas SWAT team are all... Uh, on on stage, and um, this man who is demanding release of a Palestinian um, scientist, uh, it has not been confirmed, as he states, who is his sister, who wants her to be released. She was arrested, (coughs) indicted, and is in federal prison uh, for uh, 
threats against uh, uh, U.S. national nationals and other things, and so it, this is ongoing in Colleyville, Texas. Tonight at our common ground, I want to talk as we approach the 2022 Martin Luther King Day, which is going to uh, occur on uh, Monday, January 17th, although today is uh, Dr. Uh, King's birthday. It is his actual birthday. The holiday celebrates his life and his birth. I want to talk about how we have become somewhat lackadaisical uh, in approaching this holiday. And there is another aspect, and I'll take your calls on that, there's another aspect to it, and that is how Dr. King's words, his work, and his sacrifices are being used as part of propaganda. I don't know if you saw the image, but there was an image on the Internet on yesterday of one of the lead um, Proud Boys being released from jail uh, after serving serving a sentence for um, taking part and participating in the domestic terrorist attack on the Capitol. And he was walking out of jail with a T-shirt with a picture of uh, Malcolm X on it, and it said, by any means, make America great. And under the picture of Malcolm X, it said, by any means necessary. Well, that is what happens when we have not kept the spirit of the people who have sacrificed and struggled on our behalf. That their voices, their messages, their principles, their ideology are appropriated. So tonight's um, broadcast, King Day, to forget is to forfeit. We either use it or we lose it. Um, And I've been thinking about this a lot. The establishment of a national holiday, which is the first Monday, the second Monday, the third Monday, um, of January, uh, honoring Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., marked the culmination of a long campaign that began soon after his assassination in April of 1968. And that campaign ended on November 2nd, in 1983 with the signing of legislation by 
the president, Ronald Reagan. Most people don't know it's a public law. It's a federal law. And we should always remember remember these no- numbers. These are important. It is public law 98-144. See, that's something that we should know. Our children should be talking about King Day and should be able to to cite the law. Public Law 98-144, and it designated it's the third Monday in January as an annual federal holiday in Dr. King's honor, and the first official celebration took place on January 20th, 1986. And here we are 15 years later. The campaign to mark the holiday over those 15 years is shrewd with vicious, racist pushback in and out of government. Over those years, there were many opportunities to question just what had really been achieved or transformed in America during the civil rights movement. I happen to be of that generation that watched this law. It came as, it was prompted as various efforts to pay homage to Dr. King after his assassination. During the late 1970s, his widow, Coretta Scott King, and the Atlanta-based King Center that she founded played an increasing important role in mobilizing popular support for the holiday. And in 1979, Mrs. King urged passage of a national King holiday bill when she testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee and joint hearings of Congress. So there was intensive organizing of a nationwide citizens' lobby for the holiday, and it garnered more than 300,000 signatures on a petition, of which I am proud my name is on that petition before the end of that year. Now, that was in 1979. With support from the Jimmy Carter administration, the the holiday bill emerged for the first time from congressional committees. But in November 1979, the bill was defeated by five votes in a floor vote in the House of Representatives. It was a setback. People were very, very... um, disappointed and outraged. On January in January 1983, more than 100,000 people rallied at the Washington Monument to express support for the holiday. A few weeks before the 1963 march on Washington for jobs and I'm digressing 
March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The House passed a bill creating this was the the nineteen I'm sorry, the nineteen um eighty three March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The House passed a bill creating the King holiday by an overwhelming vote of 338 to 90. But the subsequent Senate debate concerning the bill was contentious and continued into the fall of 1983. It was the late North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms who sought to diminish Dr. King's reputation by calling the rele- calling for the release of the FBI surveillance tapes on Dr. King. Those tapes had been sealed by court order until the year 2027. There were other senators who complained that another paid holiday would be too costly. But it was Senator Edward Kennedy who vigorously defended King against the allegations of racist, white supremacist Jesse Helms. And I, you know, and I, I, I say the name Jesse Helms, and I want to make this point: the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bohart. Um, um, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, all of those people who are clearly supporters of a white supremacist ideology, being in the Senate is nothing new. But Senator Kennedy noted that there were no evidence of ties between King and the Communist Party, which some senators were trying to elude, and the Senate finally voted on the bill on October 19th to a packed gallery. And in that gallery were Mrs. King, the late SCLC President Joe Lowry, um, the NAACP executive director who was Ben Hooks, the late Ben Hooks at the time. And the holiday bill was finally approved by a vote of 78 to 22, 37 Republicans and 41 Democrats voted in favor, 18 Republicans and 4 Democrats voted against. After the holiday bill became law, the King Center gained congressional support to establish a King Federal Holiday Commission, which introduced a variety of commemorative activities, including tree planting, ceremonies, the the distribution of posters, newsletters, and guides citing the principle of King's nonviolence teaching. In the 1990s, the King holiday theme became Remember, Celebrate, 
act, a day on, not a day off, which I had some problems with. I, I just want to let you know I had big problems with that because nobody asked for any other holiday for people to be working. But I digress. As uh, with other federal holidays, the observance of the King holiday applied only to federal workers rather than employees of state and local governments or of private institutions. But by January uh, 1989, the number of states celebrating King Holiday had grown to 44. And in June 1999, New Hampshire became the final state to pass some form of King Holiday legislation. And that is the history of how we got to where we are. And in all of that time, since the holiday was, uh, legislation was passed, 98-144, communities and organizations have celebrated King Day through various creative and serious celebrations and forums. A national monument in Washington has been erected in Dr. King's honor. But here's what we need to be looking at. There seems to be a, a diffusion that the importance, the significance of what Dr. King contributed to us, a diffusion in how we teach it, what we teach, what we remember, how we remember, how we commemorate and understand about his contributions. <clears throat> My point here when I say to forget is to forfeit that we take a look at whether we are taking for granted our responsibilities to keep his guidance and ideologies alive. We mention it. We attend the various luncheons and dinners, yet now we have generations of black children, a whole new community of black scholarship that tends to marginalize the power of his transformative power in our communities. We read and quote his words outside the context and the import of the history he ignited. I'm simply saying, no, I'm not simply saying, this is very complex. Because I think people think they are doing the right thing, but then we see children who can't tell you exactly beyond the I have a dream speech, who Dr. King was. Parades, luncheons, dinners alone cannot sustain the movement's progress. <coughs> I apologize. I've got to take a drink of water. 
and many of you who have been listening to me over the last couple of months, three or four months, recognize that I am really struggling with a persistent chronic cough. And I apologize for coughing in your face. I'm going to grab one of these clove candies. They're clove, real clove. (coughs) Throw it in my mouth. And I can't, maybe it's it's the microphone. Maybe it's this headset. Because I have not been coughing all day. I've been sitting in the same place because I've been on the computer all day. But let me reiterate. Parades, luncheons, and dinners alone cannot sustain the movement that he begins progress, that he began progress. We need to organize, teach, educate, and practice the philosophy of Dr. King each and every day. It's like democracy. Remember last week, if you were with us last week, I talked about the whole notion of how we learn about democracy and how we practice it. It is something that it is not some fairy dust in the in the air. So my question tonight is, as I share with you some of the most profound guidance that King gave us in his lifetime, my question to you is, can we keep King alive? We should all all ask ourselves, how many times, we, we can't just jump up and say, it's King Day and we're going to celebrate Dr. King. This man forged and changed a nation. And celebrating him is not the same thing as activating him in our need to move our people forward, to understand poverty in the way that he understood poverty, to understand anti-blackness in the way he understood anti-blackness. Because, you know, I'll say it again, we got generations of black kids who don't, you know, uh, they don't know they're black and they don't understand what it means. So here are some things that we should all be asking ourselves as we purport to celebrate Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. How many times this year did I activate the liberation philosophies of Dr. King? And if you don't know what those are, how much time are you going to spend 
trying to find them. There are books. There, there's so much material about Dr. King, and, and you really do have to be very careful about who you read about Dr. King. The other question that I pose to you and suggest that we all should be asking, other than social latitudes, posting a picture of Dr. King on Facebook and, and, and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and videos on YouTube, is acknowledging Dr. King. And what we need to do is to activate Dr. King. And so I'm asking, and we should be asking, how did you practice, use, and share the language of King's movement? If there hadn't been a Dr. King, guess what? You wouldn't have understood what James Brown was saying when he proclaimed, I'm black and I'm proud. Or Nina Simone when she sang to be young, gifted, and black. Or when she sang Goddamn Mississippi. So we should be asking ourselves, just how do I king this year? And I'll ask it again from last week. How did I lift democracy? We just cannot afford to continue to wake up on Martin Luther King Day and say, oh, he was a great man. He gave us something. His contributions and his sacrifice mean something, and we have to transpose the truth that he gave us to power. Every day, that's how you practice king. You have to king yourself. Just like I, I always tell people, you have to bakerize yourself. And, and talking about the guidance that Ella Baker gave us. We have to tell our children that they have choices. And those choices have to be formulated with some kind of philosophy, some kind of ideology. So tonight at Our Common Ground, as we do every year, I will share with you some of the most profound guidance wisdom that Dr. Martin Luther King left for us. And we hope that you will listen intently. We hope that um, you will listen purposefully In this first clip, which I'm not going to play the whole thing, it is um, 
a question that I have been posing all through 2021 that Dr. King uh, also posed prior to his death. And in the, he called this speech, Where Do We Go From Here? Dr. Abernathy, our distinguished Vice President, fellow delegates to this, the 10th annual session of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, my brothers and sisters from not only all over the South, but from all over the United States of America. Ten years ago, during the piercing chill of a January day and on the heels of the year-long Montgomery bus boycott, a group of approximately 100 Negro leaders from across the South assemble in this church and agreed on the need for an organization to be formed that could serve as a channel through which local protest organizations in the South could coordinate their protest activities. It was this meeting that gave birth to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. When our organization was formed ten years ago, racial segregation was still a structured part of the architecture of Southern society. Negroes with the pangs of hunger and the anguish of thirst were denied access to the average lunch counter. The downtown restaurants were still off-limits for the black man. Negroes burdened with the fatigue of travel were still barred from the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. Negro boys and girls in dire need of recreational activities were not allowed to inhale the fresh air of the big city parks. Negroes in desperate need of allowing their mental buckets to sink deep into the wells of knowledge were confronted with a firm no when they sought to use the city library. Ten years ago, legislative halls of the South were still ringing loud with such words as interposition and nullification. All types of conniving methods were still being used to keep the Negro from becoming a registered voter. A decade ago, not a single Negro entered 
the le legislative chambers of the South except as a porter or chauffeur. Ten years ago, all too many Negroes were still harrowed by day and haunted by night by a corroding sense of fear and a nagging sense of nobodiness. But things are different now. In assault after assault, we cause the sagging walls of segregation to come tumbling down. During this era, the entire edifice of segregation was profoundly shaken. This is an accomplishment whose consequences are deeply felt by every Southern Negro in his daily life. It is no longer possible to count the number of public establishments that are open to Negroes. Ten years ago, Negroes seemed almost invisible to the larger society, and the facts of their harsh lives were unknown to the majority of the nation. But today, civil rights is a dominating issue in every state, crowding the pages of the press and the daily conversation of white Americans. In this decade of change, the Negro stood up and confronted his oppressor. He faced the bullies and the guns, the dogs and the tear gas. He put himself squarely before the vicious mobs and moved with strength and dignity toward them and decisively defeated them. The courage with which he, and he confronted enraged mobs dissolved the stereotype of the grinning submissive Uncle Tom. He came out of his struggle integrated only slightly in the external society, but powerfully integrated within. This was a victory that had to precede all other gains. In short, over the last ten years, the Negro decided to straighten his back up, realizing that a man cannot ride your back unless it is bent. We, meet, made our, we made our government write new laws to alter some of the cruelest injustices that affected us. We made an indifferent and unconcerned nation rise from lethargy and subpoenaed its conscience to appear before the judgment seat of morality on the whole question of civil rights. We gained manhood in the nation that had always called us boy. It would be hypocritical indeed if I allowed modesty to forbid my saying that SCLC stood 
at the forefront of all of the watershed movements that brought these monumental changes in the South. For this we can feel a legitimate pride. But in spite of a decade of significant progress, the problem is far from solved. The deep rumbling of discontent in our cities is indicative of the fact that the plant of freedom has grown only a bud and not yet a flower. Before discussing the awesome responsibilities that we face in the days ahead, let us take an inventory of our programmatic action and activities over the past year. Last year, as we met in Jackson, Mississippi, we were painfully aware of the struggle of our brothers in Grenada, Mississippi. After living for a hundred or more years under the yoke of total segregation, the Negro citizens of this northern Delta hamlet banded together in nonviolent warfare against racial discrimination under the leadership of our affiliate chapter and organization there. The fact of this non-destructive rebellion was as spectacular as its results. In a few short weeks, the Grenada County Movement challenged every aspect of the society's exploitive life. Stores which denied employment were boycotted. Voter registration increased by thousands. We can never forget the courageous action of the people of Grenada who moved our nation and its federal courts to powerful action in behalf of school integration, giving Grenada one of the most integrated school systems in America. The battle is far from over, but the black people of Grenada have achieved 40 of 53 demands through their persistent nonviolent efforts. Slowly but surely, our Southern affiliates continued their building and organizing. In 79 counties conducted voter registration drives, while double that number carried on political education and get out the vote efforts. In spite of press opinions, our staff is still overwhelmingly a Southern-based staff. 105 persons have worked across the South under the direction of Jose Williams. What used to be primarily a voter registration staff is actually a multifaceted program dealing with the total life of the community from farm cooperatives business development, tutorials, credit unions, etc. Especially to be commended are those 99 communities and their staffs which maintain regular mass meetings throughout the year. Our citizenship education program continues to lay the solid foundation of adult education and community organization upon which all social change must ultimately rest.
This year, 500 local leaders received training at Dorchester and Penn Community Centers through our citizenship education program. They were trained in literacy, consumer education, Planned Parenthood, and many other things. And this program, so ably directed by Mrs. Dorothy Cotton, Mrs. Septima Clark, and their staff of eight persons, continues to cover ten southern states. Our auxiliary feature of CEP is the aid which they have given to poor communities, poor counties, in receiving and establishing OEO projects. With the competent professional guidance of our marvelous staff member, Ms. Muson Lee, Lowndes and Wilcox counties in Alabama have pioneered in developing outstanding poverty programs totally controlled and operated by residents of the area. Perhaps the area of greatest concentration of my efforts has been in the cities of Chicago and Cleveland. Chicago has been a wonderful proving ground for our work in the North. There have been no earth-shaking victories, but neither has there been failure. Our open housing marches, which finally brought about an agreement, which actually caused the power structure of Chicago to capitulate to the civil rights movement, these marches and the agreement have finally begun to pay off. After the season of delay around election periods, the Leadership Conference, organized to meet our demands for an open city, has finally begun to implement the programs agreed to last summer. But this is not the most important aspect of our work. As a result of our tenant union organizing, we have begun a $4 million rehabilitation project which will renovate deteriorating buildings and allow their tenants the opportunity to own their own homes. This pilot project was the inspiration for the new home ownership bill which Senator Percy introduced in Congress only recently. The most dramatic success in Chicago has been Operation Breadbasket. Through Operation Breadbasket, we have now achieved for the Negro community of Chicago more than 2,200 new jobs with an income of approximately $18 million a year, new income to the Negro community. Not only have we gotten jobs through Operation Breadbasket in Chicago, there was another area through this economic program, and that was the development of financial institutions which were controlled by Negroes and which were sensitive to problems of economic deprivation of the Negro community. 
the two banks in Chicago that were interested in helping Negro businessmen were largely unable to loan much because of limited assets. Hilo, one of the chain stores in Chicago, agreed to maintain substantial accounts in the two banks, thus increasing their ability to serve the needs of the Negro community. And I can say to you today that as a result of Operation Breadbasket in Chicago, both of these Negro-operated banks have now more than double their assets, and this has been done in less than a year by the work of Operation Breadbasket. In addition, the ministers learned that Negro scavengers had been deprived of significant accounts in the ghetto. Whites control even the garbage of Negroes. Consequently, the chain stores agreed to contract with Negro scavengers to service at least the stores in Negro areas. Negro insect and rodent exterminators, as well as janitorial services, were likewise excluded from major contracts with tra uh, chain stores. The chain stores also agreed to utilize these services. It also became apparent that chain stores advertised only rarely in Negro-owned community newspapers. This area of neglect was also negotiated, giving community newspapers regular, substantial accounts. And finally, the ministers found that Negro contractors, from painters to masons, from electricians to excavators, had also been forced to remain small by the monopolies of white contractors. Breadbasket negotiated agreements on new construction and rehabilitation work for the chain stores. These several interrelated aspects of economic development all based on the power of organized consumers hold great possibilities for dealing with the problems of Negroes in other northern cities. The kinds of requests made by Breadbasket in Chicago can be made not only of chain stores but of almost any major industry in any city in the country. And so Operation Breadbasket has a very simple program, but a powerful one. It's simple. Let me, my, my mic was turned off during the speech, and so I was on mute. Sorry about that. Thank you, Michelle, in our chat room for letting me know you had no sound. I want to reiterate that the, in the speech, Dr. King was outlining programs that were absolutely achievements for black people, especially in Chicago through the um, Operation Breadbasket. And it also amplifies why Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was the founder of Operation Breadbasket, is so important in the history of the civil rights struggle. But more importantly, he outlines a number to a 
large group of ministers a number of programs which could be modeled and replicated across the country. And he talks about why these programs were so important and what it meant in terms of the economic empowerment, the community empowerment as a result of the existence of these programs. Um, I think that one of the, the, the significant things that I want to highlight in looking at Dr. King as we embark on yet another holiday to honor him I think it's very important for us to reflect on how, as individuals, we can affect change that can make our society better, to make our community better. Dr. King was affectionately known as the drum major for justice, was a national focal point for the civil rights movement. Absolutely, all of his activities were not singular or sole. But more importantly, he was able to get the masses to respond to his calls to action because he had a very specific plan. And, you know, uh, in this speech he says, it's time to use your skills and talents to help make a difference in your community. Uh, And... Black Americans, a lot of Americans, answered those calls to action, and it provided the imagery that we embrace as milestones of the civil rights movement, the March on Washington, the Montgomery bus boycott, and more. But these were not only the actions that were taken during the civil rights movement, there were many other actions taken by individuals all across this this country that had an impact on local communities. Yes, they may have been on a much smaller level than the actions taken by Dr. King and and his colleagues, but they were impactful on creating systemic thinking and change just the same. Too often we get caught up in the pageantry of celebrations when it comes to honoring great leaders, and and we forget about those who helped pave the way for them to ascend into those spotlights, those who set the tables for them and others to feast, and those who made great sacrifices that history will rarely and probably will never recognize. King Day is not only a day to remember Dr. King, but it is also a day to remember those who stood by his side and had his back on many occasions. We know the names, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, Reverend C.D. Vivian, Anna Arnold, Hedgerman, Dr., um, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Joseph Lowry, Hosea Williams, and so many more. But the point here is it's not enough to attend a rally, a parade, or a commemorative event on King Day. We have to go back, and I'll say it again, how do you king? Can we keep king alive? Because when we don't keep 
his legacy alive. The, the liberative philosophies and guidance and wisdom that he was able to embellish, to present, to create, then we don't have very much to go on, even if we had a black independent political party. So we've got to go back and ask, are we just sitting on parades and luncheons and dinners to sustain our struggle? Are we willing to now organize and teach and educate and practice the philosophy of King each and every day, not just on MLK Day? Sometimes, you know, I really think sometimes that they gave the gave us, they declared the holiday because they knew that that's what we were going to focus on and not focus on the work that Dr. King um, outlined that had to be done. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, more of the wisdom, more of the principles of an ideology of Dr. Martin Luther King. Thank you again for being with us. Listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. Society is only as strong as all its individuals. The United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. that for the basis of this discussion that you have gestured towards the handmaid's tale because what we are actually looking at right now the circumstances and the crises that we are facing uh, it, it is not just white patriarchal dominion we are talking about white patriarchal theocratic dominion the really frightening thing and i'll get more into this as we go along is that The Handmaid's Tale, while a dis, like a horrific, nightmarish dystopia, it might turn out to be dated. 
by the fact that it was created and written in the era that it was and the circumstances that we now face based with surveillance, technology, uh, all, all of the tools that an aspiring theocratic dictator or authoritarian might have at their disposal could make The Handmaid's Tale look quaint almost in comparison. Something was gaining force and momentum and, and, and power within America. Um, I saw some really ugly stuff in these rallies. I heard conversations among people about civil wars. Uh, I heard talk about arresting journalists and politicians, executing them. Um, you know, obviously, I heard a lot of anti-democratic authoritarian type activity. And back in 2016, as I was doing this and going into these rallies, I... I was suspicious and I knew what I had seen, but I was not able to put together the puzzle pieces yet because the American education system does not tell you what is going on. It does not explain why we have arrived at this current moment in our political and, and, and social situation. It, it doesn't. It doesn't present to us the vocabulary needed. It doesn't prepare us to recognize growing authoritarianism. It doesn't give us the ability to understand what is going on. Uh, in my own life, because I saw this and it freaked me out, quite frankly, and I started ringing the, ringing the alarm bell, I was being told by people constantly, it was like, you're being hysterical, you have no idea what you're talking about, uh, the American political system will spit Donald Trump out, there's no possibility that he could ever be president, uh, you know, this is just a fad, the people that you're hearing are not representative of a larger movement. And what I noticed, though, was that my instincts were proving correct, not just as Donald Trump was elected president of the United States of America, but as what I was witnessing started to coalesce and metastasize. Before I go forward and talk about what I've learned, I want to state very clearly and very definitively, this conversation that we're having tonight about the dangers that we're facing, this is not just about Donald Trump. This, and he is an incredibly dangerous individual. But Donald Trump is not an ideologue. Donald Trump is not a competent, principled person. Donald Trump is more or less a bull in a china shop who, through his self-serving narcissism and lack of utter shame, made it apparently clear to the right wing and to a lot of the people that I'm going to talk about tonight that liberal democracy, the United States of America, and the institutions that we have learned to trust, that they are broken. And not just broken, but that they could be overrun via authoritarian ideas. So as we talk about this, I will mention Donald Trump, but this is not just about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a symptom of a larger disease. He is not the disease proper. This thing has been churning and growing for much, much longer than, Donald, than when Donald Trump came down the golden escalator in Trump Tower in New York City. So I've had to do the background research into what is happening, and to be honest, it is very clear how we've arrived at this point. It's very clear why we face the problems that we do. It's the denial and the delusion of the people who are responsible for trying to stop it or even to cover it and talk about it that exacerbates the problem. Professor Jared Yates Sexton joined If America Fails the Coming Tyranny 
in its premiere episode, America Under Siege, The Color of Autocracy. We invite you to join us on January 20th for Episode 2, America Under Siege, Cults, Cultures, and Religion. Our panelists include Dr. Cynthia Ann Barron. She is the Associate Professor of Theater and Film at Bowling Green State University and Reverend Dr. Susan K. Williams. Reverend Smith is the founder and executive of Crazy Faith Ministries. We hope you'll join us in this urgent discussion, If America Fails, live streaming at the TruthWorks Network YouTube channel. America Fails. Thursday, January 20th, Episode 2, America Under Siege, Cults, Cultures, and Religion, 8 p.m. And America Fails. Are you sure? We do hope you'll join us uh, at TruthWorks Network on Thursday, January 20th, 8 p.m., for If America Fails, The Coming Tyranny. Uh, In this promo, you heard, and for some reason it was cut off, uh, uh, Professor Jared Yates Sexton, who is a professor of creative writing at Georgia State University, Southern Georgia. It's a, well, and um, the the episode, uh, if America fails, America under siege, the color of autocracy is available on the TruthWorks Network YouTube channel. This week coming up. Um, is going to be another very insightful uh, analysis, examination on cults, culture, and religions as we reflect on The Handmaid's Tale, a uh, fictional story of a failed state, uh, U.S. So we hope that you will join us for that. Much America strays away from the ideals of justice. The goal of America is freedom. Used and stormed though we may be, our destiny is tied up in the destiny of America. Before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before Jefferson etched across the pages of history the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. Before the beautiful words of the Star-Spangled Banner were written, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored here without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters in the midst of the most humiliating and oppressive conditions. Yet out of a bottomless vitality, They continue to grow and develop. I say that if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery couldn't stop us, 
The opposition that we now face, including the so-called white backlash, will surely fail. We're going to win our freedom because both the sacred of our nation and the eternal will of the almighty God are embodied in our echoing demand. And now back to Our Common Ground. Thank you so very much for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. I hope you'll join us at TruthWorks Network. I really do. Uh, I was so excited uh, for the program, If America Fails, The Coming Tyranny, uh, Al Michelle Odom is the senior producer at TruthWorks on this 12-week series, and it will be every Thursday night live streaming on TruthWorks Network's YouTube channel. And I'll be joining her as a co-host when we talk with Dr. Susan K. Williams-Smith and Dr. Cynthia Ann Barron on this Thursday night. Um, just uh, very exciting, and the and the work that uh, El Michelle Odom has done in producing some of the finest commentators, panelists, speakers, experts uh, on the issues before us that are presented in The Handmaid's Tale. If you haven't watched The Handmaid's Tale or read the book. It's not necessary in order for you to join us on the broadcast, but I think that given uh, the experts that we are presenting uh, in this series, it would be well worth your your autocracy, theocracy. And Michelle introduced a new word to me, a new idea, um, th- on last Thursday night in episode one, autotheocracy. Wow. So we hope you'll you'll join us. For those of you who are just joining us and you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can do so by coming to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. If you'd like to join us on Twitter, uh, for the If America Fails series, if you'd like to join us, uh, on Twitter, it is TWN Talk at TWN Talk. Uh, I am on Twitter at Janice OCG. Learn more about the series If America Fails: A Coming Tyranny by going to www.ifamericafails.live. That's dot F-E-E. Again, thank you so much tonight here at Our Common Ground. Um, We're looking at how we celebrate King's Day, whether or not we are using the guidance that Dr. King provided us. And, um, you know, I I always come up with all these titles. And tonight I've titled this episode as King Day. To forget is is to forfeit. Use it 
or lose it. And once you've lost it, other people will take it, appropriate it, and weaponize it, and we see that's coming. Thank you, uh, Michelle, in the chat room. She says the word is not autotheocracy. It's anocracy, anocracy, A-N-O-C-R-A-C-Y, and you can find out what it means at www.ifamericafails.com. Dot live, L-I-V-E. Um, tonight, um, there's also this other thing that's going on that I haven't mentioned, and I'm kind of uh, um, um, uh, kind of uh, confused by it, and it has to be. Uh, about um, the King children are suggesting the King children are suggesting that perhaps they're asking the question uh, that perhaps And asking a question, what is the point of King Day in the same way, not in the same way that we're doing, but they're they're suggesting his family that we don't celebrate Martin Luther King Day. Um, I'm I'm not sure. I'm very family members of the uh, Dr. King plan to commemorate his legacy in an unusual but fitting way by refusing to celebrate in the name of voting rights. Um, Members of the family are calling on organizers, faith leaders, and everyday people to cross physical bridges in their community as a form of protest to restrictive voting laws across the country. Interesting. Um, The only bridge that I have near me is the bridge that the golf carts go across. I don't know. My concern is that we have generations of black students, children, who really have no idea about the depth and the meaning of his contributions, that they have not been given enough teaching and education about the sacrifices that he made and the sacrifices that others made to understand that it's not enough to attend a rally, a parade, or a commemorative event and do very little throughout the rest of the year to support the principles that Dr. King stood for. It's not enough to clap hands, high-five one another, and puff out our chest because we participated in some kind of feel-good gesture while there are still such pressing crises and inequalities in our society faced by black people. I, I, I just happen to think that King Day should be a day of resolve. 
just as we make resolutions as we enter the new year, we need to resolve to do something impactful, something intentional, and something different. And I am posing these questions to you is, can we keep King alive? Asking the question, how do you King? What I want to offer you right now <coughs> is another of his uh, more popular, um, one of his more popular um, guidance, and it was the Martin Luther King letter from a Birmingham prison jail where he postulates some very important um, messages to black people. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham city jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticism that criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should indicate why I am here in Birmingham since you have been influenced by the view which argues against outsiders coming in. I have the honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in every southern state with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliated organizations across the South and one of them is the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Frequently, we share staff, educational, and financial resources with our affiliates. Several months ago, the affiliate here in Birmingham asked us to be on call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. We readily consented and when the hour came, we lived up to our promise. So I, along with several members of my staff, am here because I was invited here. I am here because I have organizational ties here. But more basically, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C., left their villages and carried there, thus saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns. And just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus 
and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I am sure that none of you would want to rest content with a superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. In any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. We have gone through all these steps in Birmingham. There can be no gainsaying the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. Negroes have experienced grossly unjust treatment in the court. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. These are the hard brutal facts of the case. On the basis of these conditions, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. Then last September came the opportunity to talk with leaders of Birmingham's economic community. In the course of the negotiations, Certain promises were made by the merchants, for example, to remove the store's humiliating racial signs. On the basis of these promises, the Reverend Fred Shuttleworth and the leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights agreed to a moratorium on all demonstrations. As the weeks and months went by, we realized that we were the victims of a broken promise. A few signs briefly removed returned. The others remained. As in so many past experiences, our hopes had been blasted 
and the shadow of deep disappointment settle upon us. We had no alternative except to prepare for direct action whereby we would present our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and the national community. Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. We began a series of workshops on nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the ordeal of jail? We decided to schedule our direct action program for the Easter season, realizing that except for Christmas, this is the main shopping period of the year. Knowing that his strong economic withdrawal program would be the byproduct of direct action, we felt that this would be the best time to bring pressure to bear on the merchants for the needed change. Then it occurred to us that Birmingham's mayoral election was coming up in March, and we speedily decided to postpone action until after election day, when we discovered that the Commissioner of Public Safety Eugene Bull Connor had piled up enough votes to be in the runoff, we decided again to postpone action until the day after the runoff so that the demonstrations could not be used to cloud the issues. Like many others, we waited to see Mr. Connor defeated, and to this end we endured postponement after postponement. Having aided in this community need, we felt that our direct action program could be delayed no longer. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You're quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent resistor may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but that is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth, just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal. So must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society 
that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. The purpose of our direct action program is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. I therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in a tragic effort to live in monologue rather than dialogue. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. Lamentably, it is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily get, give up their unjust posture. But as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence. But we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the sting dots of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse kick and even kill your black brothers and sisters when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Fun Town is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky 
and see her beginning to start, distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs. When you are hired by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stands, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you are forever fighting a degrading and degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954, outlawing segregation in the public schools, at first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether the law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law of the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal joy. Okay, I was doing a lot of talking. And essentially what I was saying that there are far too many people to name who were involved in the civil rights movement in one way or another. 
some help create systemic change and opportunities where they work. Some broke color barriers in education, sports, and various professions. Some made phone calls and sent letters to help alert their community about the next call to action. And some sold dinners and collected money so that protesters and leaders like Dr. King could have money for gas, hotels, food, and even bail. They all played a role and all paid a dangerous price to effect change. I I really apologize because I had put my microphone on mute because of the cough. But in that in in his letter to from a Birmingham jail this week take time to read it because he gives us a blueprint to how to deal with the myriad of black children and generations who uh, are confused, aren't clear. Um, Black boys um, have the highest rate of mental health issues in this country of any group. And he gives us a blueprint of how to work in our community by writing this letter to his colleagues in faith. I'm wishing you a day of resolve. I'm wishing you a day that you can activate the king in you. Thank you so very much for being with us. We hope we'll see you at If America Fails, The Coming Tyranny on Thursday night at 8 p.m. at TruthWorks Network YouTube channel. Good night, and make it a king day every day. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace, and the norms and notions of what just is isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. 
we close the divide because we know to put our future first. We must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promise to Glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith we trust, for while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared it at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So while once we ask, How could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert. How could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be, a country that is bruised but whole, benevolent but bold, fierce and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens. But one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from our bronze-pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the west. We will rise from the wind-swept northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked south. We will rebuild reconcile and recover in every known nook of our nation in every corner called our country our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful when day comes we step out of the shade aflame and unafraid the new dawn blooms as we free it for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it and As I have written my book
Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.